0: The monkeypox virus is making headlines in the US and globally
1: we do have more cases than any other place in the world. There are about 16,000 cases thus far in the United States.
0: But while there's legitimate concern about its spread
1: we're not calling it a pandemic. If we look at monkeypox at this point in time the WHO declared it a global public health
0: emergency. And later discover a holistic approach to battling burnout in healthcare providers.
2: You're trying to make life and best decisions. Working very long hours, that has led to burnout. That's why it's different from the stress felt by the general public.
0: We're learning about monkeypox and holistically healing our healers inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Bellmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Frederic Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. If you've read or watched the news recently, chances are you've heard about an outbreak of the monkeypox virus in the U.S. and globally. But what are monkeypox? How does one get them? And who's most at risk of getting them? We wanted answers, and we knew where to get them. Dr. Mary Beth Graham is Associate Chief and Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Infectious Disease, at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Graham begins by first clarifying for us
1: that monkeypox belongs to a group of viruses called orthopox viruses. It's related to the smallpox virus. So that's kind of a brief introduction to what monkeypox is. It's a virus we've known about for a very long time.
0: Exactly how long has monkeypox been around?
1: First found in Africa in the 1950s, they found a pox like illness in a number of research animals. And because it wasn't smallpox and it was a new pox virus, they called it monkeypox.
0: You may be wondering, like I was, how monkeypox might be similar to chickenpox. Dr. Graham tells us,
1: Well, it's not. They may be called pox, but chickenpox is a herpes group virus. If you've ever been infected with chickenpox, that virus is in you forever. That's what herpes viruses do. It comes back as shingles in people when it reactivates. Monkeypox doesn't stay in you forever. It's an orthopox virus. Orthopox DNA is DNA. Chickenpox are. RNA. I mean, they're they're very very different viruses.
0: So the monkeypox virus was first discovered in research animals. And then...
1: The first human cases of monkeypox were then subsequently discovered in Africa years later. And for a number of years, it has been endemic in Africa, and we've been seeing increasing numbers of cases over the last 10 years.
0: Is monkeypox a singular disease or are there multiple variants of monkeypox?
1: There are two what we refer to as clades of monkeypox. So there is a Central African clade and a West African clade of the virus. And they differ quite a bit. The Central African monkeypox, which is primarily seen only in Africa, can be much more severe and have higher morbidity mortality with that presentation
0: compared to the West African variant we're seeing today. And it's not this variant's first appearance in the U.S. or Wisconsin. The
1: West African clade we saw in Wisconsin in 2003, where we had the first outbreak of monkeypox in North America, centered in the upper Midwest, and Wisconsin was in the epicenter.
0: Wait, what? How did that happen?
1: It was associated with the sale of prairie dogs. The theory is that prairie dogs were housed at a place adjacent to animals imported from Africa. And it was theorized that a sick Gambian rat that had come in from Africa was housed in a cage next to prairie dogs. Prairie dogs next to that sick Gambian rat were then sold either at swap meets or at pet
0: stores. Yeah you can see where this is going.
1: People who either purchased those pet shop employees or veterinarians who took care of sick prairie dogs were our patients who showed up with monkeypox back in 2003. It was very defined. We knew what the source was. There were around 70 cases at that point in time. We realized those were the West African clade of monkeypox, a very defined event around a specific
0: source. But while the current monkeypox outbreak is also the West African clade, in 2022, it's presenting differently in the U.S.
1: Currently, we do have more cases than any other place in the world. There are about 16,000 cases thus far in the United States. The most cases are in California, New York, Florida, Texas, Georgia, and Illinois. California and New York have about 3,000 cases each, and then the numbers fall into the thousands for the rest that I just mentioned.
0: What about in our community?
1: If we look at the state of Wisconsin, it needs to catch up. According to the tracker, we've had 56 cases in the state of Wisconsin thus far.
0: And globally? Initially, when it came out, the most number of
1: cases were in Spain and Belgium. Spain topped out at around 6,000 some cases, but it slowed down in the transmission. So if you look at the case count trajectory, there's still increasing cases, but a lower incremental increase versus the United States, we've been on kind of a steady trajectory up.
0: However, one has to be careful when looking at the number of cases.
1: Because we only know what's out there if somebody actually gets tested. So there's probably a lot more cases of monkeypox that are here and elsewhere in the world than what are showing up on these trackers.
0: How is the level of monkeypox cases we're experiencing now being classified?
1: We're not calling it a pandemic. I mean, some people have said, well, it's occurring all over the world. Doesn't it meet the criteria of a pandemic? And it all depends on how you use those epidemiologic terms. If we look at monkeypox at this point in time, the WHO declared it a global public health emergency.
0: How does someone get monkeypox? How is it spread?
1: In order to transmit monkeypox from one individual to another, there needs to be close personal contact with a source, that being an individual, or if somebody has monkeypox and they have bedding and then somebody comes and sleeps in that bed, could they be exposed to the virus? And the answer is yes. It is less efficient mode of transmission than skin-to-skin contact with somebody who has active lesions.
0: But while it's spread via close personal contact, Dr. Graham dispels a common misconception about monkeypox. It
1: is not a sexually transmitted infection, but it can be a sexually associated infection. There's a fine distinction between that.
0: Because while monkeypox can be spread through sexual contact... It can be spread person to person without it.
1: What we know from monkeypox is that it needs to be very close personal contact with a source. But the source back in 2003 were infected prairie dogs or the bedding that those animals were in. And that's the predominant way that people got it. So it's direct contact with a source. We did not see back in 2003 person to person spread. But what we're seeing now is person to person spread.
0: Once someone is infected, what's the incubation period for monkeypox? They
1: think the incubation period is up to 14 days after exposure, but most
0: is within a 7 to 10 day period. Next, Dr. Graham says there are classic symptoms.
1: Symptoms with monkeypox, classically, people have a prodrome. They're going to have a fever and swollen lymph nodes and a sore throat. And then within 48 to 72 hours, then they'll notice lesions developing. The skin lesions usually show up initially in the site where the exposure occurred. And for those who are getting it via sexual transmission in the genital area or in the anal area or even in the mouth, and they go through stages from the initial small lesion and then they progress to papules, then crust over, and then the crust falls off.
0: Although, she says, interestingly...
1: Now, not everybody is developing that prodrome. So somebody may not know, may not have a fever, sore throat, or swollen lymph nodes, And when the lesions start, they're not particularly painful as they get larger or if they're in areas that would be sensitive areas of the body, those then would become noticeable.
0: Which unfortunately means some people are asymptomatic early and unknowingly infecting others.
1: Because somebody is infectious during the prodrome, if they have that, until the lesions are all fully healed, crusted over, the crust falls off, and there's normal skin underneath. So it's a much longer period of time somebody's considered infectious than for something like chickenpox.
0: Does that mean someone with monkeypox should isolate from others until the last lesion is healed? Not necessarily.
1: It can be two, three, four weeks until all of those lesions are totally healed. That's a fairly long time. The CDC is saying home isolation. Well, I wonder if they'll change their recommendations. So if somebody who has monkeypox has no visible lesions on their hands, picks up something at the store, you're not going to spread it to things in the grocery store. It's not how it's spread.
0: She reiterates. It's spread through...
1: Close physical contact with somebody who has monkeypox There's less chance of transmission with inanimate objects. But if you're sharing eating utensils, there is a potential for spread. So that's
0: another way it could spread, but less efficiently than skin-to-skin contact. For the vast majority of people who get monkeypox, it's a self-limited illness. However, Dr. Graham says...
1: to downplay the fact that it can be painful. I have patients who are going through fairly significant pain because of the location of their lesions. Sensitive areas, the mouth, the genital area, the anal area is what's causing a lot of the morbidity that we're seeing with this monkeypox outbreak. So we do not downplay that.
0: And while in rare cases, it can be fatal.
1: We've had no deaths associated with monkeypox in the United States. It's usually with the Central African variant. And again, a lot of the mortality stats are from Africa. So then you have to ask which clade was involved and are these resource-limited areas. There's a lot of questions to say that this particular virus actually caused deaths.
0: Who's more susceptible to getting monkeypox? Are there vulnerable populations?
1: The issue is you need to come in contact with a source and the way the majority of cases are being transmitted, 95 plus percent of the cases are being transmitted worldwide through sexual contact, the majority of individuals impacted are men who have sex with men. Yes, there have been women who have been infected, but the vast majority, again, that ninety-ninety-five percent will fit into that demographic.
0: Also, people who are immune-compromised.
1: With almost any number of viral infections, we would worry about more severe disease in somebody who is severely immunocompromised. We would worry about potential for more severe disease in very, very young children. Just because if we're thinking about their immune systems and the way that their immune systems can respond, those are the things that would affect it. Do we need to worry about kids going back to school? No, I've been asked that question over and over again, and the answer is, it's just not
0: the way it's being spread. That's not what we're seeing. How is monkeypox treated?
1: Most people with monkeypox just need symptomatic treatment. So pain control is huge, and those lesions are in sensitive mucosal areas.
0: And now there's a treatment for patients at higher risk for worse outcomes.
1: This is a newer medication called Teciviramate. Here at Fredericton Medical College, we have gone through the approval process, but essentially it's an investigational drug that has never been used specifically for monkeypox, but in some of the studies, it seems to work very well. We do have access to it, very limited supplies from the federal government, and then getting approval for that medication to give it to somebody if it sounds complicated it's because it is
0: of course the goal is to avoid getting monkeypox altogether perhaps the best preventative measure is getting vaccinated
1: the city of milwaukee has monkeypox vaccine available we also have it available through frederick medical college you can go to our website and look at that we want
0: people to strongly consider getting the vaccine in fact There are two types of vaccine.
1: One is a traditional subcutaneous dose and another one's an intradermal dose. The subcutaneous is a half of a mil injection, like a regular shot. The intradermal is 0.1 ml injection.
0: Of the two, the CDC recommends the intradermal vaccine. And for good reason.
1: The reason the CDC is advocating for people to transition to the intradermal route, it's a very limited supply of the monkeypox vaccine. So if you can vaccinate four people rather than vaccinating one person from one vial, then why wouldn't you do that? So people shouldn't worry that they're getting an inferior vaccine if they get intradermal versus the subcutaneous
0: And if you've already had monkeypox.
1: Once you have monkeypox, the vaccine doesn't do anything. So don't go asking for the vaccine if you've had monkeypox because that's not what it's for.
0: So how serious is monkeypox? How concerned should we be?
1: If you are an individual in the demographic considered at highest risk, men who have sex with men, you've either had recent sexually transmitted infections, have multiple sex partners, then yes, you are the individual that we worry about. For the other population outside of that, there is minimal risk.
0: But what we're all at risk of is judging others who do get monkeypox. Dr. Graham says, just don't.
1: I bristle at stigmatization. If there is a lot of stigmatization, people won't contact their providers, want to get vaccinated. We need to be aware and take advantage of what we know we can do to protect and prevent.
0: Healthcare providers face significant stress in their work, including making life-or-death decisions. This puts them at higher risk for burnout, which can result in negative outcomes in both their professional and personal lives. Unfortunately, few interventions exist to address the issue of stress and burnout among healthcare providers. But one doctor is looking to change that. Dr. Shub Agarwal is an assistant professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Cardiology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Agarwal utilizes both traditional and holistic medical approaches in his cardiology practice. And now he's drawing upon his expertise in holistic medicine in developing a program he hopes can heal the healers. We spoke with Dr. Agarwal to learn more, starting with his quick overview of what holistic medicine is all about.
2: In a nutshell, it is about taking a complete look at the individual, not just focusing on the tail or the leg or the feet, as we say of the elephant, but complete physical, mental, and spiritual upliftment, development, health of that particular individual is what holistic living, holistic wellness, holistic medicine is all about.
0: So, in his practice, in which he combines holistic and traditional medicine, it is combining
2: those forces plus what we have learned in pharmacotherapy. So, you have heard of natural therapies and cures, using them in a proper way in the right individual, coupled with the addition of the current medical therapy we have, because these are very strong and powerful medications. So, coupling them together is what holistic medicine, in my opinion, should be about.
0: What does Dr. Agarwal see as the key benefits of holistic medicine?
2: The main benefit of holistic medicine is that you are in resonance with what the patient actually wants. That's number one. And number two, I'm not focused on just cardiology, but on the individual as a whole. And I go beyond the discipline of cardiology and try to heal that person. So healing is the main component. It's about trying to find the root cause of the problem and try to heal that individual.
0: Heal the individual, not in a singular way, but in all ways.
2: It could be physical, it could be mental, it could be spiritual. And that's the key about holistic is that we are trying to cure that individual, trying to find the root cause. And the other main thing is how do you prevent this from becoming a problem in the first place? So there's a lot of emphasis on prevention.
0: For example, Dr. Agarwal shares how he might treat a patient with the common heart rhythm disorder, atrial fibrillation, rather than with a traditional procedure known as ablation.
2: There are folks who get heart rates which are irregular and they don't feel good, but only 25 to 30% patients are symptomatic. And there's a huge industry now, ablating folks, giving them on toxic medications, and this has become an epidemic. It doesn't cure the problem, ablation, but this is a huge industry.
0: And this approach alone doesn't look at the root cause of the issue.
2: As physicians, we fail to talk about ARREST-AM, which are elegant studies done in Australia, where they looked at the root cause of atrial ablation. So there are some non-modifiable factors, such as age, but there are certain modifiable factors. High blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, food intake, the amount of sleep you get, stress, depression, anxiety... These are certain things which are modifiable.
0: But Dr. Agarwal says the problem is... You
2: walk into any physician's office, you get 15 minutes of his or her time. Where was holistic medicine discussed? Did we make even an attempt? So that's what my vision is, to talk about these things. Because the patient is very clear. They want to get better. But we are failing them as providers. The patients, for sure, are not aware of these things. So this is
0: what holistic medicine is about. Dr. Agarwal doesn't only want healthcare providers to preach a holistic lifestyle, he wants them to live one as well, especially considering the high stress role of healthcare providers. All healthcare providers.
2: I am focusing on all providers, be it a physician, nurse, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, pharmacist, anyone who provides care, a medical assistant, takes the pressure. They're all providers of healthcare.
0: He does recognize that healthcare systems typically have wellness programs for their health care providers.
2: We have these wellness programs, go to any hospital, they have employee wellness program, but it does not have any validated studies.
0: And in addition to being unstudied for efficacy, there's another concern.
2: The individual who is providing wellness, he or she is not even trained. It's a human resource person. And he or she has been also given this additional burden of taking care of wellness. So it's one person, no training, in charge of wellness. That means we are not emphasizing enough provider wellness. So this is a problem.
0: Which is why he developed a holistic lifestyle and mindfulness program for healthcare care providers called Heal the Healer.
2: Stress is common in all occupations. They all face stress. But the stress faced by individuals are different. And in the provider workforce, they have a much higher level of stress. You're trying to make life and death decisions, working very long hours. And that has led to burnout. That's why it's different from the stress felt by the general public.
0: Can the increased level of stress among healthcare providers result in severe negative outcomes?
2: Unfortunately, yes. So that's where this idea was conceived, because this is a large problem. Where are your providers coming from? They are part of the community. You are trying to take care of the people in the community, but your providers also come from that community. They could be dealing with those same issues, stress, anxiety, depression.
0: Issues often heightened by their occupation.
2: And that has led to significant adverse outcomes. The worst is death. The suicide rate of female physicians is 250% higher than their female counterparts in other occupations. And male doctors is 70% higher compared to the general population. This is a mind-boggling number.
0: And Dr. Agarwal follows that up with this reality check.
2: Beware, you're walking into a doctor's office. You don't know he or she may be burned out. So you are taking care from someone who is impaired. This is a psychological impairment. So you are getting care from someone like that. That's scary, in my opinion.
0: There's more.
2: It's not about physicians who are practicing for a while. We know that 75% of first-year physician residents who are providing care report burnout. That's the problem, because they have not even started their career, and they already are burnt out.
0: Leading to a cascade of negative outcomes.
2: Medication errors, diagnostic errors, decision-making error, suboptimal patient satisfaction, relationship issues with their family, and of course, significant depression leading to higher rates of suicides, just to name a few.
0: But with his Heal the Healer holistic program...
2: Hopefully we can find some solutions, not all solutions, but hopefully some solutions for this very big problem.
0: Next, Dr. Agarwal shares details about his program. First,
2: I had this idea of how to go about this. So I reached out to Dr. Dorian Ward with CTSI. She said, yes, this is the need of the hour. Then I got in touch with Mike Anello, who is a project manager helping with studies in CTSI. And we came up with a team. We worked with psychologists, dietitians, physicians, nurses, about what should be and what should not be in this program.
0: And also, who should be in the program.
2: What we are offering is, for individuals who are identified as moderate to severe burnout. You reach out to us and one of our psychologists will identify your level of burnout. If you are identified as being burnt out, then you will go through our program.
0: What does the Heal the Healer program involve for its participants?
2: You will go through our 12-week transformative program where we indulge you in a set of physical, psychological, immunological exercise programs with diet, meditation grounding and resiliency building measures
0: dr agarwal adds participants are both mentored and self-directed the
2: plan is group activity three sessions each week personally i will be mentoring two sessions each week and one they will do on their own whatever they have learned in that week they will work on that on their own for one hour and this process repeats for 12 weeks
0: he gives an example of what he teaches in the program.
2: We have five different kinds of breathing exercises. I teach all these things, but they don't have to do it for an hour. Do it for five, ten minutes. That's what I do. I do only five to ten minutes of exercise every day. And you don't have to do all the five breathing exercises. I'm just equipping you with the knowledge to control your mind, your thoughts, your hearts. React in a proper way. Take better control of your life and live a life of abundance.
0: But can this holistic program help healthcare providers overcome burnout? Well, that's why Heal the Healer is part of a study.
2: This is a study, so we collect data before and after the end of the study, including functional MRI of the brain, to show change and not only subjective measures of wellness.
0: What physiological changes does he hope to see in study participants?
2: That absolutely your levels of stress are decreasing by objectively measuring CRT levels, which is a measure of inflammation, and your cortisol levels, which is a marker of stress. And looking at your blood pressure, we are looking at your cholesterol levels. And we also want to demonstrate the neuroplasticity of the brain. We are changing the brain activity patterns, and that is
0: captured by the functional MRI. And even before study results, he's confident that the Heal the Healer program works.
2: I know it works because I have helped other folks with my program in the past, but we had not received any scientific validation for the program. So now I want to move to a phase of scientific validation and prove changes in the brain activity pattern because I've never shown that.
0: What about someone who's not a healthcare care provider or even burned out but believes a holistic lifestyle may be for them?
2: I have a website holisticworkshop.org and I have a free youtube channel called holistic workshop I have posted videos there, yoga videos, breathing videos, food videos, there are numbers to call. I see people transform and become better. That's why I became a physician.
0: Dr. Agarwal says that everyone can benefit from a holistic lifestyle, but whether or not you will, that's up to you.
2: You cannot ask someone to do something till they are convinced mentally and emotionally. So you have to use their brain and the heart. Once they understand it mentally and emotionally, then they're ready for change. I will walk with that person who's willing to change.
0: And willing to take charge of their health.
2: You should be in charge. You are the captain of your own health. And we are here as your mentors to help you. But only holistic way of living is going to give you that quantity of life. But again, more than longevity, we should be more focused on the quality of life you're living. and should be complete well-being, which is defined as physical, mental, and
0: spiritual. And on that uplifting note, we'll wrap up this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. As always, thanks to both of our guests for appearing on today's show, Dr. Mary Beth Graham and Dr. Shub Agarwal. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show. And I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. Make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Bellmer wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of this or any of our shows on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. You'll also find it wherever you listen to your other favorite podcasts. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.